Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. you pop craze youngsters and welcome to part three of episode number 48 of chart music and fucking hell revelation has been piled upon revelation already in this episode let us not fanny about let us rejoin the episode in progress the nolan's on their biggest here today i'm in the mood for dancing still with the emerald isle this is the new single from the boomtown rats Alone in front of the balcony informs us that I'm in the mood for dancing is the Nolan's biggest hit so far and would stay that way forever and ever before introducing another Irish band, the Boomtown Rats, with someone's looking at you. We've covered the Boomtown Rats in chart music's 13 and 45, and this, their eighth single, is the follow-up to Diamond Smiles, which got to number 13 only last month. It's the third cut from the LP The Fine Art of Surfacing, with lyrics by Bob Geldof, which touch upon his participation in a Greenpeace rally in Trafalgar Square the previous year, and it's entered the charts this week at number 45. And oh, boys, how fast things move in the world of pop chaps, because, you know, only a few months ago, Bob Geldof had been anointed by the tabloids as the voice of a generation. And, you know, they go on to win Best Single for I Don't Like Mondays at the British Rock and Pop Awards next month. And even the Daily Mirror, they ran a week-long section in August of 1979 called Superheroes, a revealing series on the new idols of today's youth. And wouldn't you know, the first subject was Bob Geldof. The Introduction Out of the snarling, sweaty rabble of the money-grabbing, clawing, poisonous world of the pop music industry, there comes, quite rarely, a single sane voice, which sounds like the pure note of a trumpet above the (laughs) battle for supremacy. 
The men with cigars, dressed twenty years too young, who pull the strings of the trade, fall back in their serried ranks, clutching their wallets and croaking that they have a rebel in their midst. The pop world is full of tame, make-believe rebels, most of them as full-blooded as an anemic slug, and speaking in the jargon which saves their adult minds from being overheated and hides their feeble command of the language. Most are larger than life, and twice as empty. But not Bob Geldof. Hmm. Not Bob (laughs) Geldof. <laughs> this lanky, dark-haired youth of 26 is emerging into the hard, diamond-bright light of fame and riches as the greatest rock star since the Beatles orbited a crazed world. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you want to guess at who the other superheroes as youths were looking up to in this uh, series? Uh, it's not Toyer, is it? Sebastian Coe. <laughs> I hate Sebastian Coe. David Gower. Of course. And the show jumper Caroline Bradley. Who? Yeah, such rarefied company Bob <laughs> Geldof's in at the minute. But here we are in January 1980, and uh, it seems that the rats are already falling behind the pack. No, he's the biggest icon since the big. Oh, never mind David Bowie, never mind Mark Bolan, any of that. No. Forget it. No, no. It's all about fucking Geldof. Yeah. It's weird, actually, um, uh, how, you know, um, that their period of supremacy, such as it was, has been kind of telescoped in my mind. Because, um, for example, um, a, a later hit, Banana Republic, in my mind, yeah. that was a real late period hit, like a, almost like a comeback. Turns out. Mm. It was the same year. It was it was later yes, in nineteen eighty. Yeah, 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 yeah. So really, everything that happened of any import in their career was in a tiny amount of time. Yeah, I've I've been speaking up for the Boomtown Rats quite a lot lately, here and mm. elsewhere. But got to say, watching this one this time, it was trying my patience. Oh, partly the way that he looks, the way they they present themselves. He's got this headband on that makes yes. him look like a cross between Jennifer Beals in Flashdance and Brighton and Hove <laughs> Albion Steve Foster. And, yes, uh, and it keeps cu- cutting between that and this different Geldof in a swivel chair, who's mm. kind of snipping his way out of a bin bag with his hair slicked back, and he's looking at millions of TV screens. He's like a cross between his character in The Wall and yeah. Thomas Drome. Which he's not been cast in yet. Oh right, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Thomas Drome Newton in The Man Who Fell to Earth. And, yeah, um, uh, but I mean, you got to take your hat off him for being an early adopter of the headband. You know, even before the Green Goddess. (laughs) But it has to be said, he does look... If First Blood 2 had starred Richard E. Grant as Rambo, (laughs) that's what he'd look like. Also, in terms of um, sort of slightly fading punk singers uh, wearing headbands in the early 80s, um, it's a bit Jimmy Percy, isn't it? Yeah, on Riverside, yes. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. And he is doing quite a lot of kind of overly kind of uh, mime-like movements with his body yeah. acting out. He's acting out the lyric, literally, isn't he? So He's doing his usual Pan's People style emote uh, into the lyrics, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it? he goes, on a night like this, I, z- I deserve to get kissed. And he blows a kiss. And he goes, yeah. at least but It once- looks like he's sniffing his fingers. Yes! That's exactly what I was going to say. You're reading my notes on my shoulder. He yeah. does that. S- it, it looks like he's doing that smell my finger thing that yes. terrible schoolboys do. Yes. You know? And uh, yeah, I just sort of couldn't really get past that. 
Mm. Uh, and yeah, the lyrics, as you say, it refers to him attending this Greenpeace r- rally. Uh, they saw me there in the square when I was shooting my mouth off about saving some fish, right? Mm. And it's broadly about state surveillance, 1984 style. And his yeah. website also says it's a statement on fame. But I don't feel that it has anything particularly interesting or original to say on any of those topics. You know, those topics are, you know, they've been done to death in pop music, but you, you can still make a decent fist of it. Not Geldof, not here. Um, no. I can't believe it was such a big hit. Number four it ended up. And uh, and my God, it goes on, doesn't it? Um, mm. Four minutes, 27 seconds, the single is. And um, mm. some Boomtown Rat songs, I would say, earn that kind of running time. For me, Rat Trap earns that running time. It's got... It's got drama to it. It's got different episodes, different passages to it. This one doesn't. I, you know, I, I really lost patience with it. Sorry, yeah. Mm. Also, someone should tell him whales aren't fish, they're mammals. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Already, rock is folding in on itself. You know what I mean? All the least appealing aspects of the Stones and the Kinks from the 1970s, not even the 60s, are being coughed back up here already, you know. And sold as yeah. something fresh and new. It's a terrible racket in more ways than one. Mm. It's a, there's, there's such a lot of that in the 80s. Bands with no purpose except the glorification of themselves, just doing what you thought, what they think you're supposed to do if you're in a band, you know. And the problem was punk was meant to liberate us all from this, but it just made mm. things worse because the new orthodoxy was easier to achieve so more people did it. And all these second or third-hand ideas and just all these dullards and ego-trippers enabled and encouraged, you know, not a decent tune or a single interesting thought between them, you know what I mean? It's like you were talking about how uh, the rat's star is, is on the wane here, but I think that horrible desperation was always there, do you know what I mean? Mm. Like everything they did was just straining all the time, trying too hard. And it's because there was no actual substance to the music and nothing naturally appealing in the presentation. But they have this need to be the centre of attention and this sort of sub-punk received idea that you have to be lively and annoying, you know. Mm. So it's all bug eyes and jumping up and down, you know. And it's a, it's like they're doing this song about how he's paranoid and it's like you know, paranoia is only a form of narcissism, you know what I mean? And he's fretting about someone looking at you, somewhat undermined by how shameless they are about their need to be looked at, you know. Mm-hmm. This, this fucking hyperactivity is not coming from a healthy or a or an interesting energy. It's just a, a need for attention, which can't be earned, so has to be demanded. I mean, there's clearly diminishing returns going on here with the Boomtown Rats, but they are still big enough to be allowed to have their video on. Yeah. Which is quite rare for 1980. I mean, particularly after the Nolan sisters have had a video on, but that was a BBC thing, so that was all right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit counterproductive, though, because right at the beginning, you just assume it's another studio performance. And it's not until it kicks in with this noughts and crosses motif that you realise you're actually watching a video. Yeah, and they're wearing kind of military-style yeah. stuff, camouflage, aren't they? And 
Um, so that that actually made me go back to the lyrics and look a bit more closely. So I thought, ooh, is it about the Troubles? And maybe it's wrong to just because they're an Irish band to assume that. But no, it's just me, yeah. me, me, isn't it, really? Yeah, they've just gone down to the Army and Navy, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've already expressed my real feelings about Bob Geldof on a previous episode. So mm. this time I should be a bit more measured. So let's just say that there's nothing worse than a rock star of average intelligence. It's the worst thing in the world. Either be smart and tell us something uh, we don't know or, you know, use your brain to dream up a reason for us to give a shit about you or just be thick, just be thick as eggnog and fall over for our amusement. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is it, but God preserve us from this kind of fucking small business owner or... DWP team leader who gets into rock and roll, you know, because inevitably they have their ego grotesquely swollen. Uh, but instead of making, instead of that making them do something crazy or ridiculous or entertaining, they just carry on mouthing off their, their worthless thoughts, their sort of commonplace, dreary, semi-informed mixture of, of ignorant claptrap and the bleeding obvious, except with a new sense of self-righteousness and a and an ugly air of superiority. Yeah. These people are the worst, always the worst in rock and roll in every way, this saggy, soggy middle, you know, because they think they're really clever next to a lot of the people they're meeting, mm. like a lot of rock musicians and, you know, music biz parasites, because compared to those people, they are quite clever, but... Compared to anyone with any real wit about them, they're just bores, you know, strutting about, wagging their finger at you, you know, like you're a child or, you know, like you're meant to be grateful or impressed, you know. Uh, actors are fucking terrible mm. for this as well, by the way. Um, I don't think you can be in showbiz without a grotesque ego because if you didn't have one already, you will have one after about a year. But if you have any real intelligence you'll at least be semi-aware of your own ridiculousness and you'll find ways to operate around that and ways to use utilise your brain within your preposterous new reality, you know. Sort of aware of your distance from actual reality. It's what, you know, it's what Bowie did or, or, or Dylan or Prince, you know, Marky e. Smith, anyone who's actually got a brain. But what you don't do is just start acting like all of a sudden everybody should listen to you, you know, at long last. Your unremarkable pontification has finally found an audience. Because um, that's how you end up with a disaster like Live Aid. The practical power mm. plus the kind of oblivious pride that stops you understanding that the situation you blundered into might be a bit more complicated than you thought because maybe you're not quite as smart as you've been allowed to believe. Mm. I mean, I moaned about it getting to number four, but it's partly my fault, because I did buy this. Oh, I, Simon. Yeah, yeah. You're part of the problem, not the solution. Yeah, I was I was on board with the Boomtown Rats. I sort of maybe bought it a little bit out of loyalty, because I'd liked a few of their other singles. And mm. I used to hear them around the house quite a lot. My dad was quite into uh, Fine Art of Surfacing and Tonic for the Troops albums. Mm. Um but having bought this single, I don't think I played it very much. Because like I say, it just goes on and on. Um, the other thing I noticed at the end of this is that uh, when Mike Reed is out, is introducing it, mm. he calls it someone looking at you. 
Yes. Despite despite the emphasis very clearly being someone looking at you. Yes. And it reminded me of that bit on the day to day, the John Fashionu. John Fashionu. John Fashionu. And then Chris Morris goes, John Fashanu. 10 o'clock on BBC (laughs) 2. So the following week, someone's looking at you, soared 31 places to become the highest new entry at number 14. And two weeks later, it got to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, Banana Republic, got to number three in December of this year, their last top 20 hit, and they'd released seven more singles before calling it a day in 1985. So, yeah, they had a a pretty decent 1980. Yeah. Looks frightened there. The rats and someone's looking at you. Seven top 20 hits so far, and that one's on the way to join them. And right now, here are legs to dance to the Bee Gees. out more rat stats before introducing legs dancing to spirits having flown by the Bee Gees. We've done the Brothers Gib loads on chart music and this single, the follow-up to Love You Inside Out, which got to number 13 for two weeks in May of 1979, is the title cut from their last LP, which was released in January of 1979 and got to number one in the UK album charts for two weeks in March. More importantly, it's the only single release from the LP Bee Gees Greatest, their collection of late 70s singles and versions of hit singles recorded by other people, which was put out last October and got to number one in America, but didn't do so well over here. This week, it's got up 10 places from number 26 to number 16, and when there's some floaty, ethereal, late-period disco that needs emoting to, who you gonna call... Legs and Co., which is their proper name, read you cunt. It's a bit grotesque, isn't it, his introduction, where he says, here are legs dancing to the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah, Peter Powell used to call them legs as well. Yeah, like it's kind of um, like some sort of glory hole, where yes. just only the legs are <laughs> peeping through. Or maybe, you know, the Herbie Hancock video to rock it or something. Yes, like yeah. or the knobbly knees competitions in Heidi High. Yeah, or that, um, what was it, not not sex box, but there was this uh, show on Channel 4 where it's like a dating thing where you only see people from like the ankles oh, yeah. up and then, the, yeah, that thing, then the crotch and all that, yeah. As we've learned from our forays into late 70s Top of the Pops, is disco is a welcoming temptress that allows everybody to have a go, but oh dear, the Bee Gees are about to discover that they can't remove its musk no matter what they do. Because this isn't really a disco song, but to to, to people no. like me, it was. They were that disco band, and that's what they were always going to be from here on in. Yeah. Well, the thing is, um, they hadn't made um, an actual studio album during the kind of real height of disco. Mm. I mean, obviously, they're strongly associated with it because of Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, but this album, um, Spirits Having Flown, yeah. um, was their sort of belated attempt to sort of actually 
ride that wave with an album of their own. Mm. There's a book I've been reading recently by um, our former colleague Pete Perfides um, called Broken Greek. It's, it's not out till March, but it's his sort of childhood mem- uh, memoir. And um, the way he reads this song is that there's this really kind of poignant sense of things slipping from their grasp that, mm. that they know that they're past their peak of fame and things can only go down yeah. from here and this is their last little bit and I'm not sure how much of that is peak projecting or reaching but I do like it as a theory because they were um, around this time kind of national laughing stock you know you had yeah. Angus Deaton's heebie-jeebies you had Kenny Everett people like that they were just you know doing the impression of the Bee Gees was just a bog standard thing yeah. um, in, in British light entertainment Um and in America, um, it was the tail end of them being a thing. This song, you know, they were rarely on the radio after after this one. Mm. And uh, Robin Gibb referred to it as censorship and evil in an interview. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, when I saw that, I thought, get a grip. I mean, I know... I know Disco Sucks was kind of a, a, a malicious and pervasive force, but, you know, evil and censorship, hardly. Mm. Um, I mean, this this album is number one in, in the US and the UK, so they're doing all right. Uh, but then, you know, it wasn't because of this song. It was stuff like Too Much Heaven and Tragedy. Obviously, Tragedy mm. was a big song off the album. I Love You Inside the Night is a fucking tune. Is it? I, I love it. Ah, I can't remember that one. Wow. I've got the album downstairs, I'll give it to play. Um, mm. Spirits Having Flown was... Um, and Oh, by the way, it's Spirits, and then, isn't it? It's uh, open brackets, yes. having flown, close brackets. Yes. On the single... Nice, ridiculous parenthesis work. It's, it always livens up the <laughs> song title, I think, as well as making it awkward to say. In the yeah, way. although that's not how the album is written. I don't know why, but, um, but it's one of those slightly strange, intriguing BG song titles, like... Every Christian Lionhearted Man Will Show You. Just one of these sort of startling titles. <laughs> uh, my favourite Bee Gees song title, though, will always be Fanny Be Gentle With My Love. Um, mm. Especially because I, I like to imagine them switching the first and last words yes. of it around. Um, I, I did like this song. It was... Um, it's, it's got this kind of lighter than air feel to it, which I liked. It's got this kind of utopian feel of being kind of elevated to sunlit uplands or, or ascending mm. above the cloud canopy. It's quite slight as a song, but it, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's like a cloud, really. It's, it's, it's like a gas. And I quite like it. Yeah, mm. I like this record a lot, but in a quiet way. That's the thing. It's not really a single. Um, and when it then has to take its place in the singles discography of one of the great singles bands of the 1970s. And it's right at the end. Mm. Uh, it's enough to make your OCD flare up. You know. <laughs> I can't tell whether the unusual vagueness and sort of melancholy of this record is born of exhaustion and that creeping, you know, inescapable sense of an era ending, or if it's actually a sort of hubris. And a mistaken idea that, as the you know, as the still mighty Greek gods of pop, <laughs> they can do anything and make mm, it happen. Mm. You know, yeah, it's a commercially like it's oh, this is not it's not a disco single. It's not really a single. We can do it. But if you'd bought Tragedy the previous year, mm. you'd think, yeah, fuck this. You <laughs> yeah, know what yeah. I mean? It's a it's a lovely song. But who are you trying to kid? You can't. You can't do that. You can't step down from city-smashing monster pop songs like that mm. to something so understated, you know. You can't really do it. And especially not if you do it just as the seasons change culturally, you know. Yeah. And that's what happened. And so 
that's how they went from you know galaxy straddling super pop deities to uh, a half remembered Kenny Everett sketch overnight. It's terrifying. I wonder how much say they had in this coming out as a single in the UK. Yeah, because there was quite a gap, wasn't there, between the album of which you know with which it shares a name. Oh, so yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and it was only really whacked out to, to um, pimp their greatest hits. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was uh, uh, RSO Robert Stigwood or whoever was was behind that at the time. Yeah, it's a lovely record, but they should have stuck to what they were best at, which is making disco music and eating carrots held out on an open palm with the thumb <laughs> tucked carefully underneath. <laughs> We usually pile into Legs and Co before we discuss a song. So the fact that we haven't done that this time says I think it speaks volumes for uh, Legs and Co's performance on this one. It's it's not it's not one of the most memorable ones, is it? Yeah. Well, you say that. I I found it <laughs> I found it quite no, I, I honestly thought it was quite classy and quite minimal. Uh, I mean, yeah, I that's I, why we're not talking well, about Well, I guess. It. I guess. Yeah. I like to get Dress up with Smurfs. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Or, yeah, like getting a sort of big cooking pot in the jungle or something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that that's of, what we like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in these outfits that sort of white lattice above the waist and white lettuce mm. below it. Um, and they're, they're <laughs> dancing inside a giant wind chime, is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, costumes yeah. by L. Roland Warren, I noticed at the end. Quite a sort of grand sounding name. Um, it's near the birthday party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've got kind of like white feathery dress bits and white heels and white knickers it kind of makes them look like uh, big sexy dream catchers doesn't it yeah 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 absolutely yeah. and and um i mean i do like to give credit where it's due normally they're you know pretty ropey and uh, amateurish and and we know the reasons why because they didn't have much time to get these things yeah. together but when we did uh, the earth wind and fire one recently i thought it was it was really great this one i think is also quite good um it's not spectacular mm. nothing very memorable no. happens although I, I do like how they all kind of band together for cheesy grins during that you know that that yes. silly little flute bit that herbie man plays in the song yeah and they've got these really ridiculous grins on and i I quite like that, but yeah. The set, yeah, it is the world's largest plastic wind chime, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine if your next door neighbour had set that up in his back garden. You'd be <laughs> fucking furious, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this whole routine, it is, it's one of those ones where it's just some attractive young women in tasteful but revealing outfits. Mm. Uh, dancing better than you could do, mm. but not astonishingly well. No. And there's no really startling choices being made, and no chances being taken. It's easy to quite enjoy it without thinking of anything in particular, oh, apart from the bit where the, the wind machine flutters a few too many feathers <laughs> yes. and grants us an unexpectedly comprehensive view of Jim's past. <laughs> but apart from that, it works the way I sort of suspect legs and co-routines were usually supposed to work, right? And it's like the function of daddy's faction. Yes. It's not to turn people on. It offers a sort of comfortable proximity to sexiness mm. um without starting a fire you know so the dad or or dad like gentleman can relax into a kind of perfumed reverie without without becoming aroused to the point where he has to face any crushing moments of clarity <laughs> mm. um it's like, it reminds me of having your head massaged by the pretty young junior hairdresser when she's washing your hair at the salon it's like everyone's just doing their thing. Nobody's been made uncomfortable in any way. And yet 
you have a sensual link with femininity once again, which you can enjoy without complication. Yeah, just a slight reverie. Well, me and Simon can't. A, no. But yeah, it just inspires a slight reverie, a slight kind of daydream state, which is perfect for the record, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't make you go, <laughs> it makes you go, <sighs> So the following week, Spirits, having flown, dropped five places to number 21, and the group essentially hibernated for most of the year, while Barry worked with Barbara Streisand on her LP, Guilty. The follow-up, the steely Danish He's a Liar, failed to chart in the UK when it was released in 1981, and they wouldn't return to Chartland until 1987, when You Win Again got to number one for four weeks in October of that year. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the musical podcast. I'm Kiri. And I'm Jade. And I'm Dave. Dave's on keys. But we don't play that too much because otherwise we'll have to pay some people rights money. Yeah. Uh, we do a live show where comedians come and sing their favourite musical theatre songs in front of a live audience. This podcast is us bringing that person inside of a building. <laughs> Welcome to Just a Minute with Jade Adams. <laughs> I panicked. Enjoy. Mexico dancing to the Bee Gees, spirits having fun. You should see that without the feathers. Different for girls, Joe Jackson. Reed, still alone, is given a close up revealing that he's wearing a madness badge, possibly a pretender's badge, and a badge with the word NO in big letters with something you can't make out underneath. After telling us he's been spying on Legs and Co, possibly through a hole in the dressing room wall <laughs> that Dave Lee Travis has been carving up with a spoon for the past seven years, he awkwardly segues into It's Different for Girls by Joe Jackson. Born in Burton-on-Trent in 1954, David Jackson moved with his family down to the Paul's Grove estate in Portsmouth from an early age. At the age of 16, he started his career playing the piano in local pubs, but also landed a place at the Royal Academy of Music in the same year as Annie Lennox. And after graduating, he joined the show band Edward Bear as their accordion player, then formed the group Arms and Legs, who landed a deal with MAM Records in 1976, but split up after three flop singles. 
After working the cabaret circuit for a year or so, including a regular stint as the pianist in the smallest playboy club in the world in Portsmouth, he worked up a solo demo tape and was signed by A&M in 1978. And in October of that year, he put out his debut single, Is She Really Going Out With Him?, which failed to chart, along with his next three releases. However, when he started to be lumped in with the new wave movement, Is She Really Going Out With Him? was re-released, getting to number 13 for two weeks in October of 1979. This is the follow-up to I'm the Man, the title track of his latest LP, which Jackson demanded as the first single, but it failed to chart when it was released in September of last year. Against his wishes, A&M had put this out as the next single, and to his astonishment, it's put him back in the charts, and this week, it's up 15 places from number 27 to number 12. Well, Joe Jackson, he was he was lumped into the new wave, whether he liked it or not. And uh, he actually became the one person who crossed over to America. Uh, mm. Issue really going out with him, stayed in the Billboard chart for 15 weeks and got to number 21, which was seriously good going in 1979 if you were British and not a BG. It's just as well for him that he did yeah. get out of where he was from and get to places like America, because when he mentioned... Mm. Paul's Grove Estate. Obviously, yes. it starts ringing bells, and it's yes. where there were the um, uh, the riots in 2000 when uh, suspected paedophiles were living yes. in the estate. And all I'm saying is, just if Joe Jackson had been walking around in that kind of febrile atmosphere, <laughs> I would fear for his safety. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> He's a little unsalubrious uh, looking, uh. isn't he? Uh, but also a little bit bit, bit shifty and a uh, bit sweaty. Yeah. Mm. yeah. A little nervous. So he only had three hits, and this is the middle one. Yeah. And, yes. and the biggest, I was surprised but, uh, to find out, but not the best. Um, and this, this, is a, this is a classic chart music thing. It's just the luck of the draw that, yeah. that we get the song after the good one or before the good one, you know. Um, mm. The first one, of course, being Is She Really Going Out With Him, that incel anthem um, with a famous opening line. But it was incel vis Costello, if you will. Hey, I like it. <laughs> with a famous opening line, Pretty Women Out Walking With Gorillas Down My Street. But mm. I was thinking, if the tables were turned and Joe Jack Jackson was, let's say, punching, uh, as they say. Uh, um, any nearby gorillas uh, might reasonably say, pretty women out walking with deep-sea anglerfish down my street. You know? <laughs> um, and, and the third one being Stepping Out, which I, yes. I consider the pinnacle of what I call city music. Um, but mm. I also take to be an expression of a sort of benign conservatism with a small c. Um, mm. Because uh, lines like, we are tired of all the darkness in our lives and with no angry words to say can come alive. And I, I do recall Joe Jackson being outed as a large c conservative yes uh, I, he, he had a song called obvious song which was actually listed in the top 50 conservative songs uh by the right-wing magazine national review um although right. if, if, if you actually look at the lyrics that's a bit of a stretch on on the part of the um compilers um, yeah, most of those were I yeah I yeah but getting back to the song in hand um it's different for girls it, it's the most opaque of his three big hits and the hardest to kind of get a handle on Apparently he wrote it's a kind of gender role reversal thing where the woman wants sex and the man wants love. Mm. A bit like Pretty Girls Make Graves by the Smiths or even We Don't Have To by Jermaine Stewart. Um, but mm. if you don't know that, then the experience of listening to this song, it's a bit like eavesdropping on a couple having a row in a cafe, but they're halfway through and you don't know how it started, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, 
he, yeah. he sings it with a bit of a new wave snarl, you know. At, at this point, he is still trying to be shaking Costello, right? But mm. um, the melodic structure of it and the production values of this record are closer to very non-punk singer-songwriters from late 70s America, like like Billy Joel, for instance. And um, the bass line, uh, that sort of pom, 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 it's uh, very mm. sort of gentle. It's like, it's like a Fleetwood Mac car stuff, you know, uh, mm. circa... Or how long has this been going on? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Incidentally, um, I, uh, we've mentioned his hits. I, I would direct people towards the first single of Beat Crazy, which is his album after this one, which is called mm-hmm. Mad At You. And I, I would urge everyone to check out the video. It, he, it's really something. He plays this misogynist psychopath screaming at his girlfriend, who's played by himself in drag. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fucking hell. Which is an alarming sight. Let me tell you, it's very, um, it puts the lotion on its skin from Silence of the Lambs, you know. And um, mm. he turned out to be gay, um, Joe Jackson, which... Bisexual, apparently. Okay, well, he's uh, he's in a relationship with a man at the moment, but uh, as I understand it, which when, when you look at the lyrics to It's Different for Girls, Mama always told me to save yourself, take a little time and find the right girl. Then again, mm. don't end up on the shelf. Logical advice gets you in a whirl. And maybe with his sort of constant bitterness towards women in his lyrics, he's just processing all that kind of heteronormative stuff that's being forced upon mm. him, that, you know, the social pressure to, to be yeah. straight. I mean, uh, you know, but then I'm, I'm, no, I'm no sexual psychologist. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> it's, it is a bit unfortunate for him that he's late 70s output. He's best known for moaning about girls. And, you know, um, is she really going out with him? Oh, girls fancy them and not me. And here... He's portraying himself as a bit of gangly meat being pursued by women who only want him for sex. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the label are gone, all right, Joe, your last single didn't do anything, so let's go back to you moaning about girls again because that's what people want. <laughs> yeah, but I think he's smart enough to pull this off, right, because it doesn't really come across just as him moaning about girls. It comes across more as him exploring... Uh, Sort of in an unhealthy and obsessive way, exploring sectors of the male psyche of which mm. we may not be terribly proud. You know, like is she really going out with him? Is a masterly song mm. in that respect. It's like because really everyone knows that outrage at being excluded from your own needs by women's seemingly inexplicable choices, mm. right, and resentment of a misery and loneliness that you don't feel you deserve as if as if deserve had anything to do with mm. it you know now that's something we've all felt but have usually tried to suppress because it's as well as being a dubious way of looking at things it's also not very appealing and so it does tend to become a self-fulfilling prophecy but mm. that song just goes straight in and where people like Elvis Costello would do that and they would just sound pure incel you know, just dripping with bitterness and blame, you know, like really self-righteously spiteful, like he's taking the moral high ground mm. with a cock glowing with wank blisters. <laughs> you know, it's a, I don't get that so much from Joe Jackson. It's more like he's just saying, oh, fucking hell, and yeah. documenting the problem. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist, but he doesn't pretend he's any kind of hero. Mm. You know, he's not like a, a tormented, wanking Jesus. He's uh, <laughs> He says, I get so mean around this scene. And it's not a boast. 
you know, he knows he's being a dick. Yeah. It's just that just doesn't make him feel any better. And and this song is much messier and vaguer mm. uh, to the point where, yeah, if you if you hadn't had it explained to you, you wouldn't know 100% what's going on in it. But what is clear is he's still shoulder deep in, in interpersonal complications and non-communication. And he's still got that pounding, nagging feeling that this should be the simplest and happiest and most natural part of life. Mm. Why the fuck are you making it so complicated? <laughs> Why can't you be reasonable and do what I want? Mm. Then we'll all be happy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I Yeah, and he makes it entertainment and drama, yeah. you know, as well as self-expression. It's, I, there's something truly absorbing about this song. That's the word. You go in and it's it's hard to pull yourself out. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, I can't really get through a whole album of it. No. Because over 40 minutes, that sort of cynical and slightly mean-spirited lyrical thing can wear you down a bit. And also because the music is so neat and sparse, it starts to sound like it's in black and white, as well as the musicians. Mm. Uh, But it works great as a single, because it just rolls in as something unusual. Uh, And then suddenly it's gone. And it's tantalising, you know? It's one of those singles that makes you want to hear it again as soon as it's finished. Yes, You know, because there's so much going on in it. And something really smart about the sound and structure of this track, it captures the ambiguity and the frustration and the emotional claustrophobia of the lyric, right? It's got all those hypnotic twisting Mm. repeats going round and round like a miserable three-hour conversation you know and the abrupt stops and starts and shifts and moves but it keeps going back and forth and even when it flares up it doesn't break loose you know Mm. the flare up just emphasizes that sense of confinement and exasperation uh and it would have been so easy to get this wrong and to just sound like a prick you know uh, I don't think he does. I think this is a great record. Yeah. I like Joe Jackson mainly because the cover of I'm the Man, the LP, when he opens up, he's, he's in spiv gear and he opens up the side of his coat to reveal all this stuff he's selling. And one of them was a John Travolta key ring that I actually had at the time. I won it <laughs> at Goose Fair the previous year on, uh, I think it was on the darts or it might have been the hooker duck. And it was falling to bits, but I still had it. And I really shouldn't have done. Should have junked it a long time ago. But, you know, the fact that Joe Jackson had one, I just felt a bit vindicated. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the lyrical contact when you're 11 years old is, ooh, it's not fair. Girls don't, you know, have to run around the school field in their vest and pants if they forgot the kit. Yeah. Also, it's one of the few chances to see the audience yeah. in this whole episode. And it's a bit unfortunate because they're in near total darkness, mm. uh, which is quite unusual. And it's a bit unfortunate. They're all ar- standing around that podium where Mike Reed is up in the gods like mm. a... Like an old-timey copper directing traffic. Yeah. One of those little things. Or the fat lad in the uh, relax video. (laughs) Yeah. But it creates the the unpleasant effect of the band performing directly to Mike Reed Mm. as he stands in judgment. Yes. Hand Mike down around his hips. Yeah. Listening intently. 
It's yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. You can see why they didn't go with this for very long. No. Also, he wants to watch it up there without his glasses on. Yeah, you can see him blundering off the edge with his arms held out in front of him. <laughs> like uh, some terrible accidents happen. Yeah. He needs to yeah, tie yeah. himself to something. He doesn't want to find a dead body in his doorway. Yeah. His own. Uh, yeah. Imagine landing flat on his face in the audience. Yeah. Like, they'd all just immediately start going through his pockets. <laughs> Find a, a yeah a soiled collection of Rupert Brooke poems. Uh, first draft of a new <laughs> West End musical, and uh, and his glasses. So the following week is different for girls. Jumped seven places to number five, where it would stay for two weeks. However, a couple of weeks later, he was bottled in the toilets of Dingwalls while he was having a slash, which got in the way of his UK tour. The follow-up, Kinda Cute, failed to chart, along with his cover of The Harder They Come. And after his third LP, Beat Crazy, and a switch to swing music failed to get him any sexy top 40 action, he'd have to wait until 1983 when Stepping Out got to number 6 in January of that year. That would be his last hit in the UK, by which time he'd relocated to New York before moving back to the UK in 2002 when he couldn't smoke in restaurants anymore and then on to Berlin when our smoking ban in pubs kicked in a few years later. <laughs> he's quite full on about the smoking bans and everything. Wow. You know, he's written a big um, uh, a polemic on his website about it. Uh, and he only smokes five fags a day. Don't you know? Jackson is well over 11 feet tall and it's different for girls. It's different for mama's boys and here's one for every mama's boy there at home. Susie, go on, you have a go. Go on. Still in quarantine and superimposed over a bass drum, goes on about how tall Joe Jackson is before another awkward segue into Mama's Boy by Susie Quattro. We've already covered Susan Quattro in Chart Music number 17, the 1973 Christmas special, and since then she's had a second wind, scoring a number four hit with If You Can't Give Me Love in April of 1978. At the same time, she was playing Leather Tuscadero, the little sister of the Fonzas' girlfriend in Happy Days, who was in a band with Joni Cunningham, and she's just turned down her own spin-off sitcom to concentrate on the music. This is the follow-up to She's In Love With You, which got to number 11 for two weeks in November of last year, and it's only the second single she's ever written in partnership with her husband, Len Tucker. And it's up this week from number 64 to number 50. And, uh, yeah, this is practically an answer record to It's Different For Girls, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. She's essentially moaning that her new bloke isn't up to the standards of a hard-loving woman such as her, and he's only two pumps and a squirt, and he might even be a bit gay. Yeah. The lyrics say he's a closet case with all the trimmings. Uh, Different times. Yeah. There's a bit where um, she does the thing with her little finger 
that yes. uh, in Tony Blackburn's book, um, we're, we're yes. meant to think that old uh, Barbara Windsor uh, did to him. So, yes. uh, yeah, that's being implied as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very um, sort of uh, retrogressive uh, uh, lyric sexually, let's put it that way. Yeah, it's mm. shaming someone for being, um, well, either gay or anything, well, anything but manly. Uh, you know, yeah. as as it says. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not not very pleasant, is it? And um, there there are um, you know a lot of a, a lot of uh, accounts I've heard that in real life she's not necessarily the nicest person. Doesn't come across very well in her oh, own really? in her own autobiography. I mean, for a start, she's a massive Tory and all that. Um, but you know, leaving aside that, um, you can't discount her as a massive force in rock and roll. Just huge, yeah. hugely important. Um, there was actually um, a review in NME written by Chrissy Hind uh, saying, goodbye, tits and ass, hello, rock and roll. Uh, so it was basically crediting her with being this kind of force for feminism and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, if, if if you look at the early hits and stuff like Devil Gate Drive and Can the Can and, and all that kind mm. of stuff, well, you know, before Joan Jett, before there was Patti Smith, before Debbie Harry, before Susie Sue, that, you know, there was Susie Quattro. She was the, the original kind of she-rocker, you know, and uh, and even the look, you know, the kind of the feather cut and the biker jacket and the stack heels, she, it was mm. kind of a pioneering thing. And the way, you know, she would play an instrument that was too big for her, right? The, ba- mm. the bass guitar was wider than she was tall, you know, um, and she had that amazing kind of Hellcat scream on some of those early rack records. Yeah. By this point, though, by this point, you mentioned "If You Can't Give Me Love," which is a sort of a sort of lacrimose country pop song. It's much more grown up, and mm. she's trying on this one, I think, to get back to rock and roll a bit. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, Mike Chapman actually, um, you know, who produced all the, well, along with uh, uh, Nikki Chin, uh, produced the the good stuff. Um, he's producing here, and uh, the weird thing about that is Mike Chapman, right? This is less than a year. Um, after he helped create Blondie's Parallel Lines, which is, you know, yes. pretty much immaculate. And now he's making this dog shit. You know, the quality has fallen mm. off a cliff. Okay, that's partly down to the, the songwriting. You said it's co-written by her husband. The best thing I can say about Len Tucky, he's got a nice leopard jacket there. That's probably about it. Mm. Um, but yeah, this, this song, it's, it's trying to be this kind of rollicking New Orleans style rock and roll, but it's just, I don't know. It's not Gillen, it's, it's Gillian, not- <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, all right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say it's unpleasant. There's nothing wrong with rock and roll records being unpleasant. Quite, uh, quite often it can be a really mm. positive thing. In fact, there's a record coming up later in this episode that's really unpleasant that I fucking love. But mm. I don't know if it's just the homophobia of this one, but I'm just thinking, oh, fuck off, Susie. I mean, she's only 29 here, yeah. but... Tainted with the musk of glam as she is, she might as well be as old as us now. Yeah, she feels like a relic from a whole other era, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, when you compare her to uh, other glam artists, she's she's pretty much the only one standing at the minute. I mean, Slade are on the verge of packing it in. The suite have lost Brian Connolly and will release their final LP only in Germany and Mexico. The Mud split up last year. Alvin Stardust is a year away from signing with Stiff. Um... Gary Glitter's thinking about launching the Rock and Roll Circus. So, you know, she's the last one standing at the minute. Yeah, the bell has been rung and Rack is in ruins, yeah. Mm. It's a pretty bad song, this, isn't it? It's not, yeah. I mean, it's not 100% terrible because it's a partial rip-off of a good song, uh, Sorrow by the Merseys. Oh, um, that's what it is. Yeah, and the, but the, 
the the worst parts of this are the parts that weren't in that. You know what I mean? There's a lot mm. of beer sloshing around in the bottom of this song. It's uh, it's like a record that hasn't washed. You know, it's a it's a real <laughs> mess. Uh, the tone of it is a bit unpleasant, but although this bloke does sound infuriating, <laughs> I have to say. It does, you yeah. Know, especially if he's her age. <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. presumably he's about 30. So, yeah, if he does have to ask his mum about everything. I don't think she's just complaining because he's not, you know, an oily-handed, vest-wearing giant from a transport calf who, who shits <laughs> Y-chromosomes. Uh, but, yeah, to to finish it off with the, the female equivalent of she must have been a leser. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit bit graceless, yeah, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's like maybe Susie, maybe there's another explanation for this. Who knows? But yeah, mm. you wonder whether she might not have slightly offended her audience with this song as well. Because when you try and imagine who was buying Susie Quattro records in 1980, yeah. <laughs> it's likely going to be just diehard moderately dysfunctional male fans who have a mm. an unhealthy emotional a, a obsession with her because whenever a female pop star ceases to be widely popular this is almost always the hardcore that remains and mm. you know keeps their career afloat at some level and i think Susie quattro did have her share of those uh and one assumes that a fairly large proportion of these you know, Barry George type blokes were, you know, mama's boys in in some sense, like possibly the Norman Bates sense. But you know, the let's say not entirely relaxed around women, um, mm. and rarely described as alpha males. Uh, and you you sort you wonder what they would make of their heroine declaring a contempt for them. And yeah. on the one hand, it could have alienated them, as she never did have another top 40 hit. Uh, but on the other hand, I think they might have quite enjoyed it because mm. what might be the precise appeal of leather-clad, pretend lioness Susie Quattro to such men? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think they might have been mm. wanking themselves blind to this song, like as if <laughs> Susie's made them sit in a corner and she's shouting humiliating things at them while having it off mm. with the Sweeney villain Len Tucky. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of his co-writing credit because, you know, maybe adds another colour to this because yeah, maybe Len was a bit insecure as he got older mm. and, you know, even uglier. And there's all these Aventis pretty boys swanking around. You, <laughs> know, you know when an ugly bloke has a widely fancied girlfriend and sometimes he can go a bit weird? This this could have been self validation for him, like getting his missus to sing yeah. this, you know. Because whatever mm. uncharitable observations you could chuck at Len Tucky, uh, being a mama's boy is not among them. <laughs> no, and he's moved off the keyboard by this phase, hasn't he? The new keyboard player, he's got the same problem as Len with the height of the roads, but he's he's gone for a much safer, wide-legged stance. I noticed. <laughs> Ensuring that you don't have the back problems in later life that uh, Len might have succumbed to by this mm. time. But the mm. keyboard player does have these nervous looks over his uh, shoulder at Suze as if he's saying, is she, <laughs> she's singing about me? Yeah, he's not fearsome looking, is he? No. And of course, we get another good look at the kids here. 
And they're not having it at all, are they? No. There's one lad with braces on and he's just not impressed. And it only got to number 34, didn't it? Which I think it was lucky to get that high. So the following week, Mama's Boy entered the top 40 at number 34, but would get no further. The follow-up, I've Never Been In Love, would only get to number 56 in April of this year and would be her last single for Rack Records, which dissolved later that year. She immediately signed for Mike Chapman's label Dreamtime and went back to her glam roots for the next single Rock Hard, but it stalled at number 68 in November of 1980 and she never troubled the top 40 again. Susie Quattro and Mama's Boy. Love those guitars. Fantastic. 16 years ago, this month, it was the first Top of the Pops with Jimmy Savile. Number one was I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's back there in the charts today, courtesy of Dollar. at the back comments favourably on the equipment of Susie Quattro's band before linking the first ever episode of Top of the Pops to the latest one as he points out that the Beatles were number one with this tune I Wanna Hold Your Hand by Dollar We've already covered Dollar in Chart Music 11 and this, their fourth single since being kicked out of Guys and Dolls in 1978, is the follow-up to Love's Got a Hold on There, which got to number four in September of 1979. As we've already mentioned, Teresa Bazaar has already approached Trevor Horn of the Buggles to produce them after she heard Video Killed the Radio Star, but he initially knocked them back as he was too busy. Meanwhile, Despite having a cast-iron reputation in the music industry as someone who would never leech off other people's music, David Van Day has decided nonetheless to unearth a song from an obscure Liverpool band for their next single, produced by Chris Neal, who also produced, get a load of this, Grandma's Party, and reggae like it used to be for Paul Nicholas, Dancing in the City by Marshall Hayne, New York, New York by Gerard Kenner, I Could Be So Good For You by Dennis Waterman, <laughs> all of Sheena Easton's UK-based single, and What We Gonna Get Her Endorsed by Dennis <laughs> Waterman and George Cole. Here comes Jism. And it's gone up 10 places this week, from number 19 to number 9. Oh, oh man, Chris Neal, the string in so many beads beloved by chart music. Absolutely. Do you know what? I looked yeah. into this Christopher Neal character a bit, and uh, oh, you know, good. He'd, he'd previously been an actor in sex comedy films. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> with uh, with names like The Sex Thief, uh, which had oh, Christopher yes. Biggins in it, and uh, Adventures of a Plumber's Mate. And uh, and he was in Rock Follies, right? But also, right, he was right. the host of the kids' show You and Me. No! Yeah. yeah. Fucking hell! That's quite a career path to do all that stuff, sex comedies and yeah. a, a, a show for toddlers 
and then make oh, loads of pop man. records. The he should is, have done another sex comedy about the world of children's television called Lots and Lots for Us to Do. <laughs> so I didn't know it was the same Chris Neal. The best well, bit in yeah, The Sex apparently. Thief is where a load of pornographic photos get strewn across a road and a bloke picks one up and looks at it and says, Blimey, it's somebody's cock. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Dollar Trevor Horn. I came into this episode thinking, oh, I wonder if, uh, wonder if a conversation was had in the dressing room during this episode. Well, exactly, yeah. Because if uh, he's, he's knocked them back already, yeah, he's knocked them back already once. So you've got to wonder if Teresa Bazaar sort of just tap tapping on the dressing room door. Uh, Trevor, <laughs> have you uh, had any more thought? Any thoughts about maybe working yeah. with us? You know, and he's he's too much of a nice guy to you know yeah. say no. Well, I don't know. Uh, well, yeah. Teresa Bazaar knew Trevor Horn from the mid seventies when she was a jobbing artist, yeah. and he was in a sort of backing band. So yeah, they they knew of each other. Yeah. First order of business, I suppose. Simon. Yeah. I'm guessing you have much to say about this. Uh, you, you've mentioned before that you prefer this to the original version. But before we go any further, I do need to pin you down. What is it with you and the Beatles? Um, okay. Well, uh, I'm not an idiot. I realise their huge importance culturally and musically. Um, I realise the... Um, the high quality of uh, of a lot of what they did, but it's just one of those things like where you don't like somebody's face or you don't like their voice, you just can't help it. <laughs> and there's just something about the Beatles' voices and these kind of quite nasal sort of folk singer harmonies uh, that it's just a turn off to me. There's also a certain element of, and maybe you'll understand this, Al, being almost exactly the same age as me, but we mm. grew up in a time when. We were constantly being told by the older generation that, oh, you've missed all the fun, all the good stuff, mm. the good stuff's happened already. It's all the good stuff happened in the 60s. Yeah, those are the, those, those are the golden days, and you might as well just forget about it. Just don't even try and have anything good yourselves, because, mm. you know, it's, it's all been done. So instantly you bristle against that and you rebel against that. So, you know, yeah. I didn't really want to. I, I had the Beatles kind of force fed to me as a child, really. From both parents. And, um, was being a music journalist in the mid-90s something to do with it, when the Beatles were being rammed up everyone's arse again? I'll tell you this, being a music journalist and being a Beatles sceptic is quite hard work, especially if you don't particularly want to make a feature of it. You don't want to be mm. the guy who hates the Beatles. I, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in that becoming my fucking novelty selling point, but I just mm. don't happen to be into them as much as everyone else. So I end up sort of zoning out from a lot of conversations that that people inevitably mm. have. Um, the thing with this particular song, all right, if, if I ever said it's better than the Beatles, I don't know if I ever said it's better than the Beatles. If, if I did... You said you prefer it. There we go. Yeah, that's... See, to, to say it's better would just be a stance, and a stance that yeah. I don't even necessarily agree with. In fact, I don't. Um, but I do prefer it, just personally, as a listening experience. I, I, I've got to say that... Uh, um, if I hadn't done my homework uh, or sort of didn't sort of know this stuff off by heart, you could almost imagine this being a Trevor Horn production because it mm. sounds nothing like anything else. You listed Christopher Neal's um, sort of discography there, um, mm. uh, and, and uh, the, I think the biggest hit he ever had was "Think Twice" by Celine Dion. There's there's nothing oh, really? in that very very conservative um, uh, discography to give you a clue that he could do something like this, which to me. Yeah. Sounds. I I loved how empty it was in a positive way. Very minimal, very modern. It's the song 
reduced to the absolute basics in quite a brutal way. The only thing that has any of that kind of space in it that I can think of, um, of the ones you mentioned, was Dancing in the City by Marshall Hayne. Possibly mm. a little bit of that there. Um, I'm I'm over the worst of my aversion to the Beatles. I can stick on some of their stuff and enjoy it now, including I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, yeah. But I did really love this. And, I, I, you know, watching it again on this episode, I did get something out of it. Yeah. It's got to be said, though, what a fucking plastic mod David Van Day is. Fuck's sake. <laughs> He's got this nice black kind of like mod-style jacket and matching skinny tie. But, you know, I even then, even in my pre-mod phase, I noticed that he'd done all the buttons up when you're only supposed to do the middle one up. Yeah. Which I'd learned from uh, from my mod friends at school with their school blazers. But he's ruined the look by teaming it with skin-tight satin trousers. <laughs> um, Bazaar's wearing matching trousers uh, with a jumper with massive black and white checks, which she basically looks like a, a, a teacher who's uh he's tried to be down with the kids yeah trying to be a bit two-tone yeah absolutely yeah we had that one of our teachers came in with a check skirt one day and all the all the girls on the corridor were going hey you're mod miss you're mod now <laughs> the giveaways the hair they both got purdy hair oh yeah purdy isn't it um yeah it's, no, it's, it's not a french crop is no, it no. and um there's there's um a couple at the front and you know we haven't seen much of the audience like you say in this no. episode but there's a, a blonde couple at the front who look like a shit version or like an even shitter version of Dollar themselves. Do you notice them? Yeah, and, uh, Drachma, <laughs> they were called. <laughs> and, um, and just the, the, the persona, uh, persona of Dollar was a real turn-off to me because they were presented as this kind of sickeningly devoted dream couple from a yes. photo love story, as taken the piss out of brilliantly by Tracy Ullman in, was it Three of a Kind? Or maybe Kick yes. of the 80s, but yeah, one of those. When they were dollop, yeah, 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 exactly. So, there's, you know, it was they, they're a hard band to love, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say that the three or four songs they did with Trevor Horn, plus for me yeah. this one, uh, make them a, a valid thing to have existed in pop. Mm. And it makes you wonder if Trevor Horn listened to this and thought, "Oh, okay, they're willing to uh, do something a bit different." Yeah, they're willing to accommodate my. Uh, my ambitions of taking over the world through music. Maybe. But you couldn't see David Van Day in Quadrophenia, could you, Taylor? <laughs> I mean, if you did, it would be a scene where his burger van was being tipped over by a load of rockers. Yeah, it'd be like, you, you hooligans, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Did you see Dave Van Day before Christmas with his fucking Brexit song? Oh, that he cunt. This sort of uh, get Brexit done song in front of a Christmas tree wearing a fucking Christmas jumper. Yeah. Jesus. Singing We Wish You a Merry Christmas and Get Brexit Done with a load of yeah. other twats holding up bad uh, oh. Imagine if Charles Manson had heard this. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all have been in fucking trouble. I mean, what Dollar have done here is not so much cover this song as mm. lay it on the floor, piss and shit on it, pick <laughs> it back up again and eat it, covered in their own piss and shit. Then stick their fingers down their throats and puke it back up again, and then piss and shit all over the pile of pissy shitty vomit. Uh, but there's also a downside, which is that it's just not very good. It doesn't no. do anything interesting. It's dumb, but it's not really gross. It's ch- sort of cheeky 
an iconoclastic in principle, but not really in practice, where it just sounds more like a terrible plot and a bad joke, you know, and more of a more of an artifact or an object than a piece of music, like a but an object that is neither useful nor beautiful. Um, mm. And I think the one interesting thing about this record is the way it sounds like it could have been approached as a kind of uh, nihilistic negative art project where the mm. like the point is to take a classic pop record of the past and identify and isolate everything that made it popular and good and then remove all those things to see what's left because uh, mm. it's like someone sat there and thought okay let's do i want to hold your hand but you know on the bit where it goes i can't hide i can't hide uh take off the high harmony that provides the transition back into the verse and is structurally the climax of the whole song. Let's just take that mm. off for no apparent reason. Uh, you know, that famous explosive intro to this record. Let me just get rid of it. Uh, yeah. You know, fl- the, the, the frantic, rushing, love-struck mood. It's got to go. It's got to go. Let's make it trudge. Let's make it sound like the last mile of an overambitious sponsored walk, you know. Take take it all out. Take everything out. Just get them to sing it like the undead, admiring their own reflection. Uh, and how should we present it? How should we replace the most perfectly balanced, instantly appealing, uh, culturally revolutionary image which invented the modern pop group? Uh, we'll have... David Van Day looking like a <laughs> spitting image puppet of Lady Di. Um, yes. <laughs> being upstaged by his own drummer, who's not even yes. really in the band, but is wearing yeah. a floor-length fur coat and standing up at the kit, raising his sticks over his head. Yeah. He's not even the best drummer in dollar. <laughs> David Van Day said that. Yeah. That coat looks like it's made it out of the pelt of Big Bird as well. <laughs> He's far more interesting than anything else yeah. that's on the screen or coming out of the speaker. And just out of perversity, I would love to love this. But in the end, mm. the love you take is equal to the love you oh. make. Oh, <laughs> very good. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see the name Dollar on the back of any Parkers in uh, <laughs> January of 1988, it has to be said. Can you imagine, though, if you saw this on Top of the Pops and you just thought, oh, yeah, everyone's being a mod now. This is this is what they must be into, and going out and buying it. <laughs> We're in a Dollar Dollar badge. Yeah. The way they're both dressed, they're 60s from the waist up and disco yeah. from the waist down, which yes. I don't know if that's a deliberate reflection of what the record's meant to six be. Stone. But it's six co. Yeah, it's yeah. just it doesn't work, does it? We get to see the kids at the front again and uh, they're really not into this one. Yeah. No one's jumping off a balcony to this song, let me tell you. <laughs> I've got to say there's not really a point in this episode where they come alive. No. If yeah. anyone's waiting for that, it doesn't happen. Obviously I've said my piece about this song and my view is different from Taylor's, but I am interested in uh, something that he uh, picked up on, that it could almost be a kind of art project. And it made me think, um, less than a year before this, we had the Flying Lizards doing Money. Yes. Um, now Money, oh, yeah. Money, obviously not technically a Beatles song, but thought of as a Beatles song. Um and mm. I wonder if uh, they or Christopher Neal listened to that. Thought, well, you know, we'll have a bit of that. Actually, it's possible, isn't it? Yeah, I'd be interested to know 
the amount of input that dollar add into this as well because you know it's mm. weird to think of a group like dollar taking a while to settle in and get into their stride like the way self-contained rock bands often do but they did and obviously when they finally got good it was as a vessel for the work of more talented but less photogenic people uh some of them seen earlier but at this point they hadn't quite surrendered total control, had they? I mean, they were just about to enter the dark age of their career, oh, the first dark age of their career, yes. which was when they took the decision to write all their own songs and take full creative control. You know, this dappy pair of subhumans, <laughs> you know, running the show didn't work. But, you know, fair play to them for then seeing sense and becoming passive possessed marionettes driven round by mm. people who, who knew what they were doing you know yeah but at this point i'm not quite sure what the deal was i think it's a, it's a fair point in pop in general that one of the greatest acts of of agency that you can take as a pop star is to surrender control to know when to surrender control and to know yeah. who to surrender it to yeah yeah and it's not the result of any humility on their part uh it's but it's <laughs> They were smart enough to know that this was a way to indulge their narcissism uh, more successfully, you know, and maybe end up contributing something vaguely worthwhile to the universe. Yeah. I'd like to know who picked this song. Mm. Maybe David Van Day was thinking about his uh, future career singing in care homes. <laughs> I'm not very keen on this, but I, I do have to say it's better than Dollar's version of Revolution number nine. <laughs> or Thompson Twins version of Revolution. Oh, God, yeah. So the following week, I Want to Hold Your Hand dropped two places to number 11, but David Van Day went on to form David Van Day's The Beatles with Pete Best <laughs> and sued Apple Records. <laughs> Actually, Van Day and Bazaar ended their relationship and followed up with Taking a Chance on You, which only got to number 62 in November of this year. They were on the verge of splitting up the musical duo as well until Trevor Horn got back in touch, told them it he was leaving Yes and he was up for pulling them out of the shit. After a meeting at a restaurant, he sat down and wrote Handheld in Black and White and Mirror Mirror in an afternoon and they went to number 19 in September of 1981 and number 4 in January of 1982. Yeah. That was a good lunch. <laughs> Something I wanna hold your hand. 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 All right, then, pop crazy youngsters, we're gonna put the tin lid on this part of the latest episode. Come and join us later on and we'll bring this baby all the way home. On behalf of Taylor Pogs and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed! Chart music. Great big When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.